welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I'm Carrie Peffley in the philosophy department, and I'm joined by Anne-Marie Koistra in the history department. And this week, our kind of impromptu guest joining us is Sam Mulberry uh, to talk about Tale of Two Cities specifically, but also broadly to introduce the idea of what would it be like if we read different books that were not part of our Western humanities canon? Okay, well, um, so Carrie, as we dive into kind of a weird semester for the two of us in terms of humanities, um, maybe let's start by telling our listeners kind of what our project is going to be over the next 13 weeks or so of bookish at Bethel recordings. Yeah, so we realized that neither of us is doing the the traditional humanities track right now. We both finished our one through four. I'm done, so I'm not teaching humanities at all this semester, which is always a weird semester. Um, And Anne-Marie is jumping in to the other team sort of right in the middle of the program. So we thought, well, this might be an interesting time to reflect on what we might like to teach if we weren't teaching the canon that we were teaching in the humanities <laughs> program, what are what are other books that we could talk about? What are what are things that we would love to talk about but wouldn't quite fit or would be harder to justify? And it turns out that Carrie and I both know some interesting people that we have not yet had an opportunity to have on as guests for Bookish at Bethel. And so we're going to reach out to some special guests um, over the course of the semester who maybe teach in the program, but maybe also don't teach in the program. So right, And and maybe some people who have already been guests and are really fun to talk to. And we just want an excuse to talk to them again about fun ideas. Well, there is that. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that we spent some time talking about, even at the end of bookish in December was kind of what we liked to teach or what we felt like we really enjoyed teaching and what, you know, we maybe didn't love to teach, but we also felt like it was really good for the course. And I feel like Burke and Payne came up for both of us. Yes, he absolutely did. And I think he was in that category. So in Plato's Republic, which we will totally have a podcast on Plato's Republic versus Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, in Plato's Republic, one of the things that they're talking about is why, why are certain things good? What are the, the things we call good? Why do we categorize them in that way? And Glaucon, one of the characters, puts them into three different categories. He says they could be good just because they're simple pleasures. We enjoy them for their own sake. And then we have things that are good for their own sake. Um, we enjoy them. And they also bring us really, really wonderful benefits. And Plato obviously wants to put justice into that category. And then there are things that, that he calls onerous, but beneficial. Um, and that's where Glaucon puts justice. It's, it's not fun to do, but we got to do it. And I feel like that's where Burke and Payne um, yeah. belonged for both of us. It's in, in that onerous, but beneficial category. And I just would like to say um, on the record, that that little bit of conversation right there just makes me so appreciative of talking with Carrie Peffley, that Carrie Peffley just can bring to the conversation these three categories of analysis. And it's just, it's just beautiful, Carrie Peffley. So thank you for that. I'm actually just a big fan. So um, yeah, so Burke and Payne are in that, that third category. So as much as I feel like they're good to teach, 
I have a longing always to just get rid of them both and to teach something <laughs> else. And we actually had a conversation about this with our team mm-hmm. um, about what we might do instead. Yes, we had a long, and, and it was a very contentious conversation because Burke and Payne are really, really important. And again, part of the traditional, if you're teaching history of the French Revolution, these are two really important political philosophers. But a lot of us felt the same way. They're onerous, but, but beneficial. Is there a different way that we could teach the French Revolution? Mm-hmm. And get at some of those underlying issues about um, benefits of revolution versus uh, some of the detriments of revolution, approaches to revolution, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things that I think that our humanity students are really good at is reading novels, and they really enjoy reading novels. And it turns out I really enjoy reading novels. So I think I was the one to suggest this. I think you were. I don't like to take credit for things, generally well, you speaking. Should, Henry. You should own this. <laughs> but maybe it's a terrible idea. But my suggestion was to read Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And we've actually asked our producer, Sam Mulberry, to stay in on the conversation because Sam Mulberry is actually familiar with this work as well. So Sam, just feel free to just pipe up whenever you wish. Because it turns out, by the way, listeners, that Sam Mulberry is a fantastic podcaster in his own right. I should just mention, again, on the record, since apparently this is owed to fellow podcasters hour as well, that I have had a lot of pleasure of, of late listening to Sam's podcast that he does with Barrett Fisher called the video store. And I've actually begun selecting videos from the Bethel library based on the podcast that Sam and Barrett Fisher have done. And I will watch the video usually with my daughter and my husband. And then we will listen to the podcast. And it's great to hear Lydia's reaction initially to the movie. And then her reaction after she listens to the podcast breakdown of the movie. So, for example, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre was a movie that we watched this weekend, and there's a podcast on that from Sam and Barrett. And her initial reaction to the film was, that's not what I was expecting and very depressing. But then later after the podcast, she's like, boy, but I can see that they're asking really important questions in the film, you know, so it was, it was just pretty, pretty great. So Sam, um, thanks for, for joining us uh, in our sort of informal discussion of A Tale of Two Cities. Absolutely. And if you ever want to do uh, an episode of this, where we talk about something you could, you could add from the uh, 15th century, uh, talking about things like the hundred years war, I have a movie we could watch. Ooh, that's great. <laughs> that's based on a historical primary source. So I'm ready for that too. Does but that's not what we're here to talk about. Joan of Arc by any chance? Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, right. I know. So exciting. So many things coming down the pike in Bookish at Bethel. All right. So let's talk a little bit about Tale of the Two Cities. So I was just confessing to my fellow podcasters that as much as I recommended this book, I read it a long time ago and don't really remember a whole lot about it. So was this something you read in high school, Amory? I did not read it in high school. Okay. So and I also, sorry, Carrie, what were you saying? When, when did you read it? Well, see, this is, this is my huge confession. I, I was an English major and I somehow skipped certain really important authors. Oh. So I never read Milton in college. 
And I never read Charles Dickens even in college. So I confess that I only read A Tale of Two Cities when I think my husband was teaching it um, at a local school and he had his class reading it. And I was like, you know, I've never read that and I should read it because it's kind of iconic. And so I think I read it as um, just an adult and just, just reading through it. So that's probably also part of the reason my memory of the book isn't great because I wasn't part of a class. So how about, how about you two? Like, What's that? It wasn't at a formative time. I think some of those books that we read early on, because it's been, for me, it's been like two decades probably since I read it because I read it in high school. So like, like our fellow podcaster, Sam, I read it for the first time in high, high school and then I loved it so much. It became immediately one of my favorite books. And so then I reread it a few times in my early twenties and then it's been a while since then. Okay. And Sam, so you read it in high school too. You were saying that before we started. Yeah, I, I, it was, I went to this tiny high school where we read whatever they had enough classroom copies of. And this was one of the books. So I think everyone in my high school read it senior year. We did Brit lit. Um, and, uh, it's one of the first books that I fell like fell in love with. And I didn't, I had a great high school education, but I didn't read a ton in high school. Um, but this was one, this was one of the things as a class, we had to make a deal with our teacher that no one would read ahead because the great thing about Dickens is like, there's like twists and turns and cliffhangers. So like we had to agree, we would only read to this page. Like imagine having a bunch of high schoolers and holding them back from reading, but that's what we had to, as a class had to agree. So no one would, would spoil the story because none of us knew the story and it was, yeah. So I, I absolutely loved it. I think that like Sidney Carton um, for a long time was probably like, and probably still is one of my favorite characters in, uh, in literature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I just remember, so I was a very, I was a very good student, a very nerdy student in high school. And I always went to bed at a very reasonable time and got up early and did all of my homework and went to school. This was the first book where, because my teacher also made us stay, like, don't keep reading, but I could not stop. And it was the only time in my entire high school experience where I stayed up until I think 4.30 in the morning because I could not stop reading it. And I read it and I read it and I read it until I finished and then I cried myself to sleep. That's the only time in high school I ever did anything like that. So do you have the, do you have the impression that a lot of our students have read this? I don't, I don't think so. I think a lot of students in high school read Great Expectations. That's the Dickens they read, which I, I mean, I like Dickens, but I think that puts a bad taste in their mouth and then they never come back to Dickens. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. So I, I never read it and I, I don't have a, I mean, students are reading such weird things compared to what I read in, in high school. So, I mean, a lot of them have never read even um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird anymore. Like that's somehow passe. And that seems so odd to me, like, cause I feel like everybody read that in high school, but so from what we can remember about the book, and also I think I read it about a year ago. Uh, uh, I read it in 1994, and then I read it about a year ago. Um, what would be different about teaching the French Revolution using this as your text compared to using like Payne and Burke um, and thinking about um, kind of in uh, maybe a more intellectual way of thinking about the revolution versus uh, this would be, you're definitely in the heads and hearts of 
of characters living on the periphery and even central in uh, in aspects of this? Like, how might that change the way students um, talk about, think about the French Revolution? Mm-hmm. Well, I think certainly one of the ways that it would immediately change things is, as Anne-Marie mentioned, re- our students are really good at reading novels and, and, and picking up on themes from novels. And one of the things they like about reading novels is that they can have discussions about what these characters are experiencing um, and the themes that arise from that. And so I think you get the themes of, right, what do we do with the aristocracy? Are all of the aristocrats evil, right? Darnay is in this struggle to reject his past, this aristocratic past and the, and the horrible evil things that they've done but then he's also essentially condemned for what those ancestors did. So you have this, this uh, fine line that they're walking between being overly revolutionary or not revolutionary enough. So that Burke and Payne debate is kind of there in rejection of the aristocracy, revolutionary extremism, um, you know, those sorts of things I think would have a more personal aspect um, as opposed to say Burke and Payne talking about them theoretically. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I at one level, I mean, it's the whole book is written by one person, so it's one person's voice. But because you have these characters, you're able to not only think about this as two sides of this question, but it's like what they what for each person they're coming at it from a little bit different perspective right. in terms of where they're at in the society and and how they're how they have personal uh, personal connections to it, and not just kind of intellectual connections. Right, because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the characters, so Darnay ends up back on trial because of, like Madame Defarge, mm-hmm. I remember is this, she's kind of, she's a revolutionary, but she's not a likable character and she's very angry and kind of vengeance. So you see yes. that. There actually is a character called the vengeance too. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, and I think one of the things that we struggle with, or that I should say, I should, I struggle with when we're doing the Burke and Payne debate is while we can do a fairly good job helping students to understand the different categorical approaches to change, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got Burke who's, you know, representing this um, idea that when it's better to um, do a conservative remodel rather than a teardown, which is our um, gosh, pain approach to revolution, like those things still seem so remote. Whereas I think a novel does help them see that these are tangible things and they actually matter. And I I actually think as much as the most recent events have been awful for everybody, but now that we've had an actual attack on the Capitol, that will be also something where we begin to go, okay, how do you approach change? Do you approach change through um, social unrest and violence? Is that the answer? Because there is there is a cost associated with that. I think sometimes when you read um, pain, you're like, yes, I, I favor that radical approach to change, but they don't always get like, when Burke responds, he kind of goes through the, the list of, okay, well, these are the horrible events that have happened, but you don't actually as a student necessarily understand like these are horrible events that have been happening Mm -hmm. because they seem so remote. Whereas with Dickens characters, you're like the students are connecting with them. So I think it helps take something that's theoretically distant 
and makes it seem like it's actually important. And these things, these questions have some weight. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Plus you get, you also get the layer of, you know, thinking about someone like Sidney Carton is both, gets caught up in this French revolution stuff, but then there's also his sort of personal struggle with his, the meaning of his life and his identity. So you get that layer as well. And I'm somebody who um, is probably overly critical of movies and and books when it's like, Oh, now we have to have this like romantic subplot in it too, to, you know, to, to sell books or some movies, but in a story like this, it's like, that's actually at the core. It's like, how do we think about these things in the abstract? But then how do we also think about them, when sort of matters of the heart are tied into that as an individual and how do those things maybe cloud our view of things? How do they get in the way? Um, so you can, I think you can have both conversations and now you could do that with, with Payne and Burke, but you're coming at it from a little bit different perspective. Um, but I think that helps to personalize it. I, I also, I mean, I don't know, I've never taught Payne and Burke. I don't know how often students read those two and sort of think of themselves, uh, think of Payne and Burke as entry point characters for thinking about history, where I think uh, Tale of Two Cities does that. Like you can, you, I read Tale of Two Cities and I become Sidney Carton and I become Lucy Manet and I become, you know, I become all these people as I'm reading it. And, and he does such a good job of making you wrestle with the point of view of every character where even someone like Madame Defarge, who, you know, is probably, comes off as a little more villainous than some of the other people, but it's like, but you get it. It mm-hmm. makes sense. Like it, it makes sense why she would feel that way. Um, and partially why she comes off that way is because you're so invested in Lucy and Charles and, and Sydney that it's like, Oh, she's the problem to that love story. But is she a problem to this other thing? So I, I think that's that in some ways makes it more complex, even though you are adding fiction to it at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And you can see because you are suddenly connected to these characters, in some ways it shines a light on maybe the that fine line between justice, wanting justice, and then seeking revenge um, that you're not going to get in just reading Burke's list of the random aristocrats who have had bad things done to them, right? That just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't connect. Um, even though and, you know, you're right. It's incredibly important. The things that Burke is describing are incredibly important and horrible, um, but not not easy to connect to. And, and I think it also can cloud your your view of justice in the other way. It can be this thing where it's like, but I like Charles Darnay so much, so he shouldn't have to suffer. It's like, well, or, you know, or, like, or, or should he? Like, I mean, it allows you to, I think, point to biases a little bit because it, it's not, the characters aren't necessarily coming from clean ideological positions, nor are they attempting to, uh, you know, for the most part. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I also think I, I mentioned, I came to Dickens very late in life and it was partly because I think it's my, I mean, I think my father-in-law did a master's thesis on, on Dickens and his whole bookshelf was like full of Dickens. And I was like, dude, I've never read Charles Dickens. And I, if, if I think about Western humanities as a little bit too of sort of the canon of Western thoughts, um, great, great writers sort of feel like there's a little obligation to introduce students to Charles Dickens, just even in that regard. 
Right. I mean, I was actually thinking it's funny that we're thinking about, you know, doing things that are outside of the canon. And we're beginning with Tale of Two Cities and Charles Dickens. And he definitely is part of the canon, but he's sort of an obvious choice that we've never we've never used. But I think he's just in some ways, though, he is a little bit of an outsider in that um, a lot of his books represent that voice of kind of the the working class and the oppressed Mm -hmm. so he's not outside the canon in terms of he is a white englishman you know um and clearly accepted by by um folks in the canon but he is somebody who all of his his novels are saturated with the voices of the oppressed and i think too even, um, you know, just the, the, the weirdnesses in the books. There, there's something very, um, very interesting in, in his books and, and the weirdnesses and the dark, the darkness of London and the little corners and, and all that good stuff. So mm-hmm. he's made me outside of that way. Yeah, yeah. And one of the other things that I love about Charles Dickens and this novel in particular was that is that it, because I, th- I think this one came out in a like in a periodical um, or serialized form. And so I remember when I learned that he was, I think, you know, paid by the page or something like that. I was by like, the word, I think. It, by the word. That's why it feels like it takes forever to get started. I remember um, our teacher telling us, you know, in high school, just you're going to be in pain for the first about 75 pages or so just keep working on it and then then you'll you'll get to it so I feel like people who have finished Dickens they appreciate it but they've really worked for it right it's something that they've 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 had to work hard to get through sometimes well and I would say I would say on a on a superficial more superficial level uh, when I think about the so the humanities program at Bethel, some of the DNA of that comes from a course that I teach, Christianity and Western Culture, which goes back to the 80s. And one of the things that one of the founders of that course, Kevin Craig, always talked about was like, like what are, are there like kind of um, almost cultural literacy things that, you know, references that, that people should get? And Kevin was always big on like, you know, making sure students would get references to things. And um, this is a book that has both one of the most famous openings to a book and one of the most famous conclusions to a book. And there are things that, you know, whether you're watching, you know, um, weird, you know, Cartoon Network comedies or or high art, you're going to see references to, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You're going to see references to is a far, far better thing I do today than I, right? Like you're going to see those things. Um, so I always, it's sort of like with Shakespeare. I always like when students can encounter those types of references in their natural habitat. Like it's not just that's the line the ending line of this book but when you get to that this thing you've maybe heard before in the culture like it it, it is imbued with a much deeper meaning mm-hmm. yeah well and if we were gonna spend like a whole period on the art of the French Revolution that would also be very enjoyable which I know we don't have time for like an art lecture on the French Revolution. But I know that one of the things that I encountered for the first time, and again, Sam might be able to talk into this as a, someone from sort of an arty background a little bit, but was the symbolism of liberty in the form of a bare-breasted woman. That is just one of those things where we probably couldn't have a whole lecture on it, but that would be an intriguing sort of 20-minute 
deconstruction of why this image of a bare-breasted woman ends up becoming the epitome of liberty. Like what is, what's all, you know, what's that all about? And let's unpack that, but that's maybe another whole conversation. Sam, any comment? Uh, not on that. No. <laughs> <laughs> we need Queen Rosa here for this. Yeah. You never know what Wayne will say about the pair breasted ladies yeah. in art. Yeah. Uh, so I was just thinking, I also really like, so Sydney Carton, who is just a wonderful character, his meaning making that happens throughout the novel would also connect well to a lot of our other themes in, mm. in the other texts that we read um, about what is human nature, um, how do we make meaning, right? This guy goes from a, a drunken kind of, I was just gonna swear, uh, drunk nobody to to this amazing self-sacrificial character making meaning out of this chaos, um, which connects nicely to some of the themes we like to talk about, which is probably why we like it. Right. Well, and I do I do like thinking about that question with students. Like, what is the essence of human beings? Like, what do, what human what are we seeing as the comment on that from one text to another? So, humanity's three students, and that's. Um, what I'm teaching right now, have just read uh, Mary Rowlandson's Captivity Tale. And we've spent a lot of time talking about how she is making meaning out of a really horrific experience. And yet I keep telling them, you know, even though she is telling the story in order to teach the people around her a lesson, that you can depend on God and we need to come back to God, there's also some very interesting little cracks that appear in that story too, where she's definitely depending on God, but she's very much also telling a story about how she is surviving and she is using her skills. She's using her street smarts to survive. And so as much as, you know, there's sort of this dependence on God's sovereignty, there's also sort of a comment about, you know, human beings have some capacity here as well. And so even in something like that, there's sort of an interesting, and then again, the contrast between her versus the Native Americans, are they even human? That's, I mean, the question, like, what is a human being? What are the, the qualities of a human being? Those are questions we keep coming back to. And I think you're right, Carrie, Tale of Two Cities does give us a great chance to, to examine that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and I think like like Carrie's saying, the ability to um, the there's a lot of characters who are redeemed, who are brought back to life. I mean, I think that's even the the the, mm. the first section is called. I think on the soft time, I think it's called "Return to Life." Right about the doctor who had been imprisoned yeah, for all this time. Now, so so he is brought to a new life. Carton is brought to a new life. And in that final speech, I mean, that last line is great, but the actual speech that Carton gives is about you know, thinking about the future and how there, you know, that, that she will return to, they're moving back to, to London, but she will return to France someday. And, you know, there'll be this, this child, like there's this, this sort of thing about the, the future and how Sydney, it's not his child, but it will have his name. Like they will name it, name it after him. And I'm spoiling the book now for people, but it's like, right. But it's this, it's just like this beautiful thing about like um, different kinds of redemption um, and, and, you know, and it's, it's agency too, right? Like, like Carton is somebody who, 
at the beginning seems like he's kind of wallowing in his uh, his misery, wallowing in his drunkenness, and doesn't feel like there's anything he can do about it. And then, I mean, what's inspirational about that character to me is that he there's a point where it's almost like the light of agency turns on, mm-hmm. and he realizes, well, I can do something, right? And speaking of agency, right? The the people pushing for the revolution are people who have been historically told they have no agency. I mean, if we think about like medieval uh you know you know medieval people who were peasants things like this not a, necessarily a lot of agency and, and this is a story about that group of people also taking agency and the good and the bad that comes from that as well so i think there's lots of themes like that that are are, are really fascinating to think about you know in conversation especially as you know if this is a 19th century novel because you get both it's about the french revolution but it's also a 19th century novel right. mm-hmm. and how does that push us into the 20th century as well yeah, I'm just looking to see when this is um, published. I'm just um, not seeing it off the top of my head, but is it post Austin? It is post Austin, yeah. but I'm just wondering if this is kind of occurring during the um, time when England is trying to debate legislation, for example, with regard to working class conditions and um, poor relief and all the rest. And I would guess that it is, um, but I'm not seeing the publication date there. So. Um, well, Carrie, I don't want to um, wrap this up too too quickly, but um, our time is is running thin here. So we also always ask each other sort of what's on on our nice end. And I don't know, Sam, is it is it fair for me to? You weren't really a scheduled guest, but is it all right if we ask what's on your nightstand? It looks like 1859 is the publication date. If you're oh, curious, oh wow, okay, thank you. So, Sam, what's on your nightstand? What are you reading? I am about to read, well, I'm one book I'm reading, uh, and this Anne-Marie is tied to this, is we have a, a little honors program book club coming up. So Gilead is definitely on my nights. I've read this book before, um, and I haven't quite started the, the reread, but I think it's next week we have our first, um, our first book club meeting. So um, I will be reading that. I also have a book that I, another book I have not started that... Um, one of one of the other uh, figures on this podcast network, Annie Berglund, recommended called "Girl, Woman, Other" um, by uh, Bernadine uh, Evarist, Evaristo. Evaristo. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just got it. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. So that might be a, that might be a this weekend read. I will say the last thing that I that one of the one of the fun things that I've read lately um, over break was. I reread one of my favorite books that I haven't read in a long time, um, which is I'm a big J.D. Salinger fan, but I hadn't actually read Catcher in the Rye probably in about 10 years. And this was a book that I used to read almost every year. So I was sort of curious as a 43-year-old, would I read Holden Caulfield differently? I will say I was afraid to read it. This part of it is I was afraid that I would read it. And this book that was really inspirational to me would would feel different because I've heard a lot of sort of cynical middle-aged people talk about that book and and uh and i was sort of afraid that that was going to be me um because i feel like i'm somebody who as a kid read it and learned the right lessons from it and so like i didn't learn (laughs) that the world is just full of phonies and things like that but i mean the stuff that really moved me is actually the the kind of the kind of titular passage in that where he's holding is talking about you know um what his vision of being a catcher in the rye is and like that's always been one of the more inspirational um almost mission statement kind of things for me so uh i was i i can i can tell you as a 43 year old i read it and loved it and i i fell in love with holden i read him a little differently i think i read 
him more through the eye, me being a father than me being like Holden. Um, but I definitely didn't, uh, I was not like horrified by him. I, I, I loved him in a, I loved him like a father this time. And I actually really enjoyed that. Oh, that's reminding me that I never, I've actually never read Catcher in the Rye. So I need to add that to my reading list because that's, I missed out on actually American literature in high school. And so that area of my, my literary training is nil. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, see, we both have major gaps in our, our background there in terms of our literacy. So Carrie, what's on, what's on your nightstand? So I actually have two books back on my nightstand uh, that weren't before because I just finished last week. um, I just finished reading Jesus and John Wayne, um, which was just a fantastic book. And for me, growing up in the evangelical tradition, it was just like connecting all of these dots that were very, like very present in my memory and my experience. Um, but seeing sort of militarism and patriarchal notions throughout, you know, my church upbringing, um, like connecting all of these very interesting and kind of horrifying dots. It was really good. Not a great pre-bed um, reading, <laughs> but, uh, but, but very, very interesting. Um, and so then uh, I have just now revisited. So I'm nearly done with Terry Pratchett's Jingo now. Um, and we'll be moving on, I think, to one of his young adult books afterwards. And then also slowly working through um, the other book on my nightstand is Ulysses, because we're, you know, ramping up eventually for our Ulysses themed podcast. Yeah. Not to put any pressure on you, Anne-Marie. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, so this is funny that you mentioned Ulysses. So when we had Rushika on with Dan Ritchie and was it Andy Bramson who was on and they did sort of their various um, secret Santa, not so secret Santa gift giving book giving. I think that Rushika had been assigned Dan Ritchie and she had given him the book rain tree County by Ross Lockridge. And I am also a big fan of Rushika. And so I thought, well, she's, she's kind of, she's got some, some eclectic, taste in terms of what's on her nightstand and what she likes. So I checked this book out of the library. Well, I don't know how long Ulysses is, but this has got to compete with that. (laughs) It is a door stopper, my land. Um, So I am probably a third of the way through this saga about kind of civil war, um, reconstruction era, kind of from a vaguely Northern perspective. And I, I would not give this book to you, Carrie, or to you, Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, I can see why, I can see why Rushika finds it intriguing because it, there is sort of this really interesting sort of memory versus sort of moral obligation kind of stuff. There's definitely a character who I think is going to come out to be much more complicated than maybe we realize right now. And so I can see that it's intriguing, um, but I got to quick wrap this thing up so I can get to Ulysses because mm-hmm. I, I do feel the pressure, Carrie Peffley, <laughs> about, about Ulysses. But I will also continue to recommend the other book that I'm reading much more slowly with my daughter, which is the Ursula Le Guin 
Earthsea series. So if you're looking for something that you could, that is a very good read, you know, book to read before going to bed because it's slow. She's painting a whole world, but it's increasingly complicated as the book kind of goes on. And I, I highly recommend Ursula Le Guin, big fan. Excellent. So, yeah. Well, folks, um, thanks for joining us. And as always, you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. <laughs>